Well, good evening and welcome to our midweek Bible study. And uh, things are a little bit different tonight, uh, but uh, we're still going to plow through it anyway. Uh, we uh, are having some inclement weather here in Colorado, and so we had to cancel our in-person Bible study. Uh, so we're doing everything live stream tonight. So there won't be any questions and answers or any interaction with the uh, congregation as we usually do here at Plum Creek Chapel on Wednesday nights. Uh, it'll just be me uh, teaching, but we're so thankful for uh, the wonders of technology and the ability that we have to be able to uh, live stream uh, our service tonight. So we're continuing our look at how to read and understand uh, the Bible, and as is our custom, let me just mention a couple of quick announcements. Uh, our Tuesday podcast yesterday at Not By Works, uh, as you know, we're a regular guest on the Christian Underground News Network podcast with Curtis Chamberlain, and yesterday's topic was what the Bible says about eternal rewards. A fascinating subject, fascinating discussion as we talked about it uh, for about an hour. So that uh, podcast is posted uh, on the Not By Works website or wherever you listen to podcasts on any available app. Just search for Not By Works uh, Ministries. And uh, while you're there, I hope you'll subscribe uh, to the Not By Works podcast as well. Uh, we finished up our look at the tribulation period after I think it was 16 weeks uh, on that uh, particular part of the end times this past Sunday. Our nine o'clock Sunday Bible study is on what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. And this coming Sunday, we're going to move past the tribulation now and talk about the second coming of Christ. And what a great uh, uh, moment that will be as we come back with him to inaugurate the long-awaited uh, messianic kingdom, the kingdom on earth as promised in uh, Scripture. So I hope you'll uh, uh, live stream with us on uh, Sunday at 9 or be with us in person, weather permitting, of course. And uh, Or, of course, you can always watch the videos. They're all posted right there at notbyworks.org. Just uh, hover over the videos menu on the left side of the homepage and then click What Lies Ahead, and you'll see all 42, I think it is now, videos in that uh, ongoing series. Uh, but tonight, this is part 10 of our uh, How to Read and Understand the Bible uh, series. And uh, I someone sent me a, a humorous uh, cartoon that I thought uh, perfectly illustrates uh, what we're talking about in terms of the context and really reading the Bible in its plain normal sense. So uh, here's a guy who's trying to open a pickle jar for his wife. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And his wife says rather snidely, it's a pickle jar, Tom. Twist the lid, not scripture. Well, indeed, that's what happens is a lot of people twist uh, the scriptures. And, uh, and we want to avoid doing that. We want to know how to read and properly understand and interpret God's Word. So we do have a case study that I want to look at tonight, uh, like we do every week in this uh, series. Uh, in fact, it's one that uh, one of our members at Plum Creek Chapel, Chapel recommended and asked me to look at. But I'm going to save that for a little bit later in our uh, study tonight, because one of the rules that we're going to look at in as we continue to look at some basic principles of Bible study methods, some rules for interpretation, one of them deals explicitly with the context, and I think this passage that uh, we're going to look at tonight will serve as a great illustration uh, at that time. So we'll skip ahead now and just continue with our look at some of the uh, rules for Bible interpretation, and then we'll come back to uh, the kind of the sample or the, the case study, uh, if you will. So uh, obviously we're 
following the, the broad paradigm of the five rules or the five steps in the Bible study process. Uh, these are the steps that we taught uh, back at the beginning of this series and ones that I've taught for many, many years. And we want to keep this paradigm, these steps in place. Uh, we're now zeroing in on step one, on how to study the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context. Um, and once we get that down and really understand the basics of uh, you know, grammar and syntax and context and all of that, then we can begin to expand the focus and move to step two, which is to compare Scripture with Scripture. And then we can uh, summarize our findings based on the whole of Scripture and formulate a, a doctrinal statement or a belief statement. And then, of course, don't forget, the Bible study process does not end with uh, arriving at the meaning of a passage or uh, articulating a doctrine that the Bible teaches. The Bible study process goes forward all the way to steps four and five, which involve uh, a personal application to our own lives. And the goal of Bible study uh, is a changed life. In fact, we talked about that uh, last week. Uh, in the 24 Rules of Interpretation. So let's just briefly review uh, the first six that we talked about uh, last week, and then we will pick up with number seven. Uh, so we talked about how important it is right out of the, the, the chute to, to recognize that the Bible is authoritative, that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. It is, as we've said many times, God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. Uh, but the, the uniqueness of the Bible is that it has a divine author. Uh, as we talked about uh, several weeks ago in the early stages of this series, really the only way to explain the amazing, miraculous continuity of God's Word, a book that was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages, and yet has just spectacular continuity from Genesis to Revelation, is through divine inspiration and the fact that God is the one that was really the ultimate author uh, of the book. And so that's what makes this book unique. It's not unique, as we've said, because it's mystical or that uses code language or secret you know, symbols and things. It's, a, it's written in language, and language is pretty universal. It has nouns and subjects and verbs and so forth. Uh, but the difference is the Bible is authoritative. It's our only standard for beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And so, uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, Howard Hendricks, one of my professors years ago, used to say, when you read any other book on the planet, you're doing something to it. But when we read the Bible, it's doing something to us. So that's our starting premise. The second principle that we talked about is uh, that the Bible best interprets itself. Scripture explains Scripture. You can't have contradictions. And if there's a passage of Scripture that is somewhat difficult to understand at first reading, uh, then you can often uh, look to other parts of Scripture that are talking about the same subject and, and interpret the clear in light of, uh, and I'm sorry, interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And so this is what theologians call the analogy of faith. Uh, and it just means that as we read the Word of God, we cannot have one part of Scripture saying something, teaching something uh, that is uh, contradicting something else in Scripture. Uh, because God obviously is perfect and flawless. And Proverbs 30 verse 5 tells us every word of God is flawless. The third principle that we touched on is the, the, the important principle that you have to be a believer, you have to be a born-again Christian to really be able to embrace and apply the Scriptures properly. Now, you don't have to be a Christian necessarily to understand the words on the page. If you can speak 
uh, English and you're reading an English translation of the Bible, then you can certainly understand what a particular sentence or paragraph is saying. Uh, but that's about as far as it goes. Once by faith you have trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation and become regenerated, born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, uh, we then have the Holy Spirit who then uh, gives us open access to God and he, he does a work in our lives where He is constantly leading and guiding and co correcting and rebuking and convicting. And of course the Word of God, that two-edged sword, works in tandem with the Holy Spirit to help us welcome and apply and embrace the Scriptures. And we talked about how what that looks like uh, many times for the Bible student is that you'll be reading a passage of Scripture. This is for believers now. And as you're reading that passage, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind maybe another passage that is related or connected in some way. And so you'll flip over there and then you'll come, another passage will come to mind and you begin to draw uh, connections between the whole counsel of God, within the whole counsel of God. Obviously, unbelievers can't do that because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Number four, and this is very important, I think we spent quite a bit of time on this, uh, we have to always interpret personal experience in the light of Scripture and not Scripture in light of personal experience. Uh, the Bible is the ultimate arbiter of truth. Now, we have a lot of experiences. There are even mysterious things that might happen in our life. There are mysterious things we might see or hear or come across or stories that we might be told or we might have uh, other, uh, we might have friends that tell us other stories that, uh, and accounts maybe that we weren't firsthand witnesses of but that are like really strange. And when that happens, we, can't, we have to be careful not to elevate those experiences to a level that is somehow presenting new truth. We have to run everything uh, that we hear and see through the grid of Scripture because the Scripture is the ultimate arbiter of truth. Number five was that biblical examples are authoritative only when supported by a command. So particularly in the historical narrative portions of Scripture, we will often see things happening that are not intended to be taken as uh, models for us to, to follow. <laughs> Uh, they're just telling a story, and the Bible tells a story, and it involves human beings, and human beings are fallen beings uh, ever since the fall of man in the garden. And so not everything you know, Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or whoever did is intended to be for us to follow. Uh, but if it's, it coincides with a command of Scripture or it's clear that what they're doing is following a command that is clearly taught elsewhere, then, of course, we should... Uh, take that to heart. So we want to be careful not to what, what I call principalize or allegorize uh, certain parts of Scripture, especially in the narr historical narratives. And remember, the historical narratives, and we've talked about this in the Old Testament, are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And those are books that are essentially relaying the history of Israel and the kings and judges and so forth. Um, in the New Testament, the only strictly speaking historical book is the book of Acts. And so as I'm teaching through the book of Acts right now on Sundays at 10 o'clock at Plum Creek Chapel, at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, uh, I'm taking the what Luke tells us in his narrative under the inspiration of the Spirit, and then I'm trying to bring in some cross-references to show that, you know, when I want to make a principle or make a point, to show that I'm not principalizing the text out of context. I'm finding someplace else... Uh, in Scripture. So another way to say that is that historical narratives are descriptive 
not prescriptive. And so that was uh, uh, number uh, number uh, five. And then number six that we looked at was to remember that the primary purpose of the Bible is to change our lives, not to increase our knowledge. And that's where we left off last week. That's also what I talked about at the beginning of tonight's uh, study uh, when we reviewed the five steps in the Bible study process, that the end goal is to change our lives, and we must never uh, forget that. Now, let's move ahead with some more general principles of interpretation. Number seven is each person, each human being, has the right and responsibility to investigate and interpret the Word of God for himself. Now, this is very important because, remember, for about a thousand years during the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church dominated the landscape and, of course, told uh, Christians or people that were part of the Roman Catholic Church anyway, may or may not have been Christians. You don't become a Christian because you're, uh, you know, baptized as an infant into the Catholic Church. You become a Christian by trusting personally in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But in any event, people were told during that, that time that they could not read the Bible. That it wasn't for them. It was only for uh, priests and uh, the initiated, if you will. And, and in fact, if you were caught trying to read the Bible, you came under harsh discipline and sometimes were even burned at the stake. So, but the Bible itself teaches that, uh, that, that, that we are to study the Word of God, that we are to use the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that it's the Word of God that will... Uh, cleanse our way if we heed it. So uh, it's very important to recognize that each person has the right and responsibility to investigate and interpret the Word of God for himself or herself. Now, where this comes into play today, of course, it's still a factor in the Catholic Church. Uh, most Catholics do not uh, read and study the Bible for themselves, but it actually also comes into play in, in many uh, sort of uh, personality-driven or cultic Bible-teaching churches. I, I've come across this many times through the years where a particular Bible teacher uh, becomes so famous and so well-known and his parishioners begin to follow him uh, you know, all over the world in some cases by listening to tapes or listening to other uh, you know, uh, of his materials, especially today in the, in the Internet age, that's easier to do. And so they end up basically becoming so well-versed in that particular uh, preacher or teacher's uh, theology that they can echo his theology verbatim, but they end up not really double-checking it on their own through the Word of God. And so that's why you'll hear me say often, you know, don't just take what I'm saying uh, for, you know, for, uh, for the gospel truth, so to speak. You, you got to check it out for yourself. Don't just assume that everything I'm saying is right. This may come as a shock to you, but I can be wrong and have been wrong. And so, I mean, obviously God uses pastors uh, to, uh, you know, help teach the body of Christ. And there are those that are called to be Bible teachers. And in, in general, they have special training where they can dig a little deeper and learn the languages and learn uh, systematic theology and things like that. So nothing wrong with pastors and certainly God uses it. And that's part of God's plan. Uh, but if you remember when we talked about why do you believe what you believe, one of the things that I pointed out is that there are, uh, you know, the ultimate reason to believe what you believe is because that's what the Bible says. And because pastors are not infallible, they might be wrong. So you, you never want to find yourself thinking, oh, I believe this because pastor so-and-so said so, or I believe this because JB says this. 
You always want to say, I believe this because the Bible teaches it. And you want to be able to defend it for yourself. So, uh, unfortunately, in, uh, in our culture today, especially in so, sort of the conservative Bible church movement, there have been examples, I won't mention names, but of well-known Bible teachers who have sort of transcended the Word of God themselves. And I'm not talking about, you know, the cults like the David Koresh's and people like that. I'm talking about among fairly orthodox uh, teachers, but they, they become regimented in their teaching and they become, uh, you know, their followers, their parishioners uh, basically uh, think that everything that person says is, is right and they can do no wrong. And so they've sort of circumvented the study of the Word of God themselves. And so that's why this principle is on the list. We have to keep in mind and, 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 and very important to remember that each of us has the right and responsibility to investigate and interpret the Word of God for himself. So in my life, you know, I, I've studied under a lot of great men of God and uh, Bible teachers and theologians, and I've been really blessed in that regard. I'm so thankful for that. Um, you know, it's something I, I find myself pinching myself sometimes to think, wow, how did, I, how did I get on this journey? You know, I didn't just wake up one day and, and, and know a lot about the Bible. God brought people into my life uh, and called me into ministry and through seminary twice and a Bible uh, liberal arts college. I, and growing up in a Christian home, I was able to, to you know, and continue to study the Word and, and grow in my knowledge of God's Word. Um, but you'll hear me say sometimes when I'm mentioning another Bible teacher, you know, so-and-so teaches this, or I've heard so-and-so teach this, and I'll often say something like, well, I agree with them on this point, but I don't agree with them on some other areas. And that's, that's really what every believer ought to be doing. Um, because uh, not, not, you know, this side of glory, we're not perfect. And uh, we're not you know, always going to uh, get it right. And so the bottom line is study the Word of God for yourself. Uh, and that's why this study that we're doing right now on how to read and, and understand the Bible uh, is so important. Uh, number eight, another general principle, is that church history is important, but it's by no means decisive in interpretation of Scripture. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I, I have done a lot of uh, conferences at uh, Calvinist-type uh, events, uh, things like uh, Ligonier Ministries and Desiring God and Crack and uh, some of these other T4G and so forth. And I got to tell you, uh, and this is not an exaggeration, this is just an observation, uh, but those conferences where the, the Reformed theology is pervasive, they, they tend to quote the church fathers, you know, the Spurgeons or even going way back to, you know, before uh, that, way more frequently than they do the Word of God. Because to them, their system is sort of the driving uh, paradigm, not the Word of God. And, and I don't mean to say they don't value the Word of God. They do. These Calvinists and, and some of these men that I've had the uh, opportunity to interact with, they love the Lord and they love His Word and they value it. They're conservative. They're not liberal. They don't uh, you know, reject the inerrancy of Scripture. But the problem is they weight, uh, weight W-E-I-G-H-T, more heavily the teachings of the church fathers than they should. And 
what we need to understand is that, as we said in the modern day with with preachers and teachers, it's you know we got to make sure and run everything we hear through the grid of scripture. We have to do that with church history as well. So uh, the reason we say it's important but not decisive is that obviously, if someone today, two thousand years into church history, were to come up with a completely novel, bizarre interpretation that no one in 2,000 years has ever heard of before, well, that ought to give us pause, okay? Um, it doesn't mean it's not possible, but it certainly, uh, especially on the biggies, you know, our Christology, our Trinitarianism, our deity of Christ, um, you know, our eschatology and all of those things that, that, that really the Bible is pretty clear about. Obviously, you heard me teach on eschatology for a while, so you know that a lot, a lot of people w would disagree with me on that. They think eschatology is complex and, and hard to understand, but it's not when you understand the Bible and its literal, grammatical, historical uh, method, then it's it's quite simple to understand God's plan of the ages. Um, but in any event, you know, uh, if someone were to, uh, one of the major areas of theology were to come up with a completely novel uh, idea, that should give us pause. Uh, but at the same time, they need to run it through Scripture, and we need to run it through Scripture. We can't reject a particular viewpoint by simply saying, well, no one's ever taught that before. We have to open up our Bibles and show, okay, here's why that view is wrong. Um, so church history is important, but not uh, decisive. I have a good friend that I uh, think the world of. We, we've uh, worked together many times for many years now, and he's up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Uh, his name's Paul, and and one of the things I love about Paul is he's such a student of the Word and such a man of, of God's Word that he often challenges me with some of his interpretations. And it, it might be a verse or a passage that I've studied ex extensively for years, written about, taught about, and yet he'll come up with uh, kind of a, a unique twist on it. He'll he'll observe something in the text that I've not noticed before, and he'll he'll say, "Could this be happening? And could this be what this means? Or what do you think about this?" And and it's always fun to dialogue with him. We talk a lot by phone, and when I'm up there a couple times a year, we we have some great theological discussions over lunch. But the difference is, it's all being done through the lens of Scripture. Okay, it's not uh, him saying, you know, hey, I've got this new view and no one's ever thought of this before and church history's been wrong or, or it's not me saying to him, you know, that's very interesting, but I've never heard that before, so it can't be right. Uh, we're, we're iron sharpening iron through the word uh, of God. I can remember uh, speaking at a conference. This was probably 12 years ago now. And we were, I was on a panel at the end. I was one of several speakers. And at the end of the conference, they had a panel discussion where the audience could ask questions. And one of my uh, topics uh, at the conference had been uh, the nature of the gospel, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, which is the uh, driving passion of Not By Works Ministries. And uh, another speaker had presented a view of the gospel at this conference that was quite aberrant. And uh, it was suggesting that a person uh, did not have to know that Jesus died and rose again to be saved. And in fact, that uh, the, you know, they, they could have no conscious knowledge of that. They just needed to believe in Jesus and have no knowledge of who he, who he is. They didn't have to know he was the Son of God, didn't have to know he died and rose again. 
And so obviously that kind of was met with quite a few uh, gasps when that particular speaker spoke. And so it, understandably during the panel discussion, someone asked him about it. And the comment that the uh, person from the audience made, I don't remember the exact quote, but the, the gist of it was, you know, your view of the gospel, sir, is something that uh, has never been really taught for the last 2,000 years. Are you suggesting that uh, the church has gotten the gospel wrong for 2,000 years? And I'll never forget the, the speaker's answer. He, he basically said, yes. He said, well, you know, there are a lot of uh, doctrines that took hundreds of years for the church to kind of get settled on, and maybe we're just now getting settled on the gospel. Well, that ought to raise a huge red flag when someone says something like that, because uh, clearly the Holy Spirit is not going to allow the church to grow and expand for 2,000 years without any knowledge of an accurate gospel, only to suddenly be uncovered uh, the accurate gospel uh, by some uh, obscure Bible teacher. So uh, church history is important, uh, but it's not uh, decisive. Another general principle is this, the promises of God throughout the Bible are available to believers of every generation through the Holy Spirit. And the reason this is an important one to remember, and it's just something to kind of tuck away in case you come across this, but uh, there are people uh, that suggest that, you know, the Bible is sort of like on a timed release and that, um, that you know, as, as time goes on and, and human history goes on, the Bible takes on new meaning and new special import for certain uh, people. Um, but the fact of the matter is the Bible is a timeless truth and, and it hasn't changed its meaning. And the promises of God from Genesis to Revelation were just as poignant and effective and meaningful to people in the you know, Middle Ages uh, as they are to us uh, today. And so the Bible doesn't have an expiration date uh, it doesn't uh, need to be, uh, you know, cured over a period of time. It is what it is. And when the quill hit the sheepskin, the Spirit of God moved the men of God to write what God wanted us uh, to know about Himself. And so we need to remember that uh, we're not any more enlightened than previous generations, and nor are we any more uh, in the dark than generations that will come after us if the Lord tarries his coming. Uh, now let's move into some grammatical principles of interpretation. And uh, we will probably come back to this uh, next week because I want to see if, if any of our folks that are usually come in person for our midweek Bible study, we usually have a good crowd, I want to see if they have any questions about this because this is one that I find often kind of get, I get a little pushback on. But we need to remember the, the principle of the singularity of meaning. Scripture has only one meaning, and it should be taken literally. And what we mean by that is, uh, when you come to a passage of Scripture, when that was written under the inspiration of, of the Spirit, God intended to communicate one thing to us. That's meaning. That's the original meaning, the authorial intent that we're striving to uncover. Um, sadly, because of the deconstruction of language and Satan's attacks on language, Bible study in contemporary times has become essentially more of a discussion group where people sit in a circle, a facilitator, which is what they call themselves now, not teachers, because a teacher implies that 
there's absolute truth that is being conveyed, you know, there's some uh, rock-solid correct answer that is being conveyed, whereas facilitator just uh, just sort of like throws it out there and lets everybody talk about it. But people in contemporary Bible studies sit in a circle, a verse is read, and then they go around the circle and say, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? And they don't recognize that in so doing, they are violating this principle of Bible interpretation. Um, you know, the, the, each passage has one meaning and only one meaning. Now, we talked about this at length back in the early days of this uh, series. This is the 10th uh, session in this particular study on how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, so it was probably less than two or three, if I recall. But we made a big deal about the distinction between meaning and significance. So every passage has one meaning, uh, but it might have a variety of applications and it might have great significance in varying ways to different people. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to mold and shape us. But that doesn't mean that it has multiple meanings. So singularity of meaning is a critical, critical uh, uh, principle. Uh, if a passage of Scripture could have more than one meaning, then it could have an infinite number of meanings. I mean, where do you stop? There, there could be as many meanings as there are people reading it. But again, we're not reading the Bible as if it's some type of code language and then asking the Holy Spirit to supernaturally plant the meaning in our head like it's some kind of a cipher. We're actually using the basic rules of language to understand what Scripture means uh, in its context. So singularity of meaning, I, I'm sure we'll come back to that uh, next week. Uh, and certainly if you're watching online or you're uh, watching this video uh, after uh, the session is over, uh, feel free to email me if you have some thoughts or comments about that. Uh, this, the next grammatical principle is that we always have to interpret words in harmony with their meaning in the times of the author. So this is why word studies are so important. Uh, I was uh, had a Zoom meeting earlier this week with someone. We were talking about word studies and this, in, in this day with the technology, it's amazing how much easier it is to do word studies uh, than it used to be. I can remember uh, when I first started out in ministry, this was before computers were very popular. When I went to seminary, I went with a typewriter. Um, but by the time I graduated the first time from seminary, uh, some of my uh, classmates were starting to get computers. Uh, and there was a, compu a new computer lab at, at the seminary. And that's where I went to, to do my uh, work and type out my papers in the old Word Perfect is what I use with that blue and yellow screen. But, uh, but obviously, it's a different day and age now. But uh, back then, all the word studies had to be done by hand. And so I had all kinds of books and tools on the shelf that could help me uh, study the Greek and the Hebrew and make sure that I understood what it meant in that context. And so, uh, obviously, words change their meaning over time. Words take on new meaning. Um, and uh, a, a classic example of where this grammatical principle is often violated is when studying the New Testament, uh, students will uh, take the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, if you remember, about 285 B.C., so roughly 300 years before the church and before the New Testament was even started being written, uh, the Old Testament scriptures were translated from Hebrew into Greek because that, at the time, was the common language of 
you know, the Greek and the Greco-Roman Empire. So uh, that was that uh, document's called the Septuagint uh, because 70 scholars worked on it. Uh, but it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so sometimes when studying the Greek words in the New Testament, uh, students will go back and find that same word in the Septuagint and see how it was used there. And that can be helpful as long as you keep it in context. But the, the reality is those two documents were separated by more than 300 years. And so just because a writer in the first century in the New Testament uses a particular word, uh, and then the translators of the Septuagint used a particular Greek word, doesn't mean that those both of those meanings are inherent in that word. It could have evolved a little bit. It could have changed. So uh, it's very important to uh, keep word studies in, uh, in uh, context. You, you want to do synchronic word studies, which means within time, not diachronic word studies, which means across time. Um, and that's easy to do in the Bible because we have 27 books of the New Testament that were written roughly over a period of 50 years from roughly 44, 45 A.D. when Matthew was written and James was written about that same time to 95, 96 A.D. when Revelation was written. And so that's pretty much a generation. And so as you do a word study, if you look up where else that word is used in the New Testament, obviously context still comes into play. Uh, you know, words don't have you know inherent meaning or technical meaning. They have meaning in a context. So, you know, the word uh, uh, illustration that I've used before in English is the word trunk. Uh, trunk, obviously, uh, if I were to ask you what it means, you're going to tell me several different things until you hear it in context. So a trunk might be part of an elephant. It might be part of a tree. It might be a big suitcase that you carry things in. It might be uh, the, the back storage compartment of a car. Uh, so, uh, until you see a word in context, it's kind of hard to know what it means. But generally speaking, words have a, a small, a smaller semantic range of meaning. And so if you look up a word in a particular passage and you see how else that word is used in uh, the New Testament, uh, then you're, you're in the same general time frame. So, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to understand, I think, what we're talking about there. Uh, we, you know, the Bible wasn't written in English, so you know we we take a word like here's another example. Um, the Greek word uh, dunamis is uh, the word power, dunamis, um, and uh, it's the it's the word that's used in um, Acts one eight, I believe. Let me check real uh, quickly. Acts one eight. Yeah, dunamis is what's used in, uh, in Acts uh, 1.8. And so it's, uh, in terms of its uh, etymology in English, that's where we get uh, the word dynamite from. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's based on the Greek word dunamis. Well, of course, dynamite in English didn't come along till centuries after Luke wrote the book of Acts and used the Greek word dunamis to describe the power that we have as the church is expanding and sharing the gospel. And yet you'll hear pre pre preachers bring that meaning of dynamite back into the first century usage of the word dunamis and say, you know, the, the power that the Holy Spirit has is this explosive power, right? 
So that's just another example of, of violation of this uh, principle of interpreting words in harmony with their meaning in the times of the author. And then uh, number 12 is we should interpret a word in relation to its sentence and context. Again, there are several uh, errors that people make. One of them is called the fallacy of technical meaning, and that is assuming that a word you know, means the same thing in every context. It doesn't. Uh, it, it, you know, it might have similar meaning, but especially in the case of uh, English, like the illustration I used with trunk, uh, they can be, have widely divergent uh, meanings. I mean, really, what does the nose of an elephant uh, have to do with the part of a car? I mean, I, it's just I would have to look into that and discover why they chose to name the storage compartment of a car a trunk. But, uh, but so you always interpret words in relation to the sentence and the context of what is being written there. And so this goes back to that concentric circles of context that we've talked about. Uh, you know, the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error because you need to expand the focus and make sure that everything makes sense uh, in the context. Um, so uh, interpret a word in relation to a sentence. The number 13 is similar. Interpret a passage in harmony with its context. Interpret a passage in harmony with its context. Now, here's where I wanted to bring in uh, tonight's uh, case study. And this is, you know, basically what we've been doing every week. We've been applying rule number 13 as we look at certain passages that are often misinterpreted uh, and taken out of context. Uh, we hadn't gotten to uh, principle number 13 in our 24 rules of interpretation yet. Uh, but uh, this is a it's a biggie and it's one that we've sort of instinctively been talking a lot about. So you always want to interpret a passage in harmony with the context. So someone asked me uh, to take a look at Joel chapter 2 and the famous statement that he makes there. Uh, this passage is quoted in the New Testament, uh, which we'll look at in a second. But Joel says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, how often have you heard that statement made in the context of an evangelistic appeal where people are trying to tell the lost how they can have eternal life, how they can be born again, become a Christian, and somehow they'll work into the discussion this phrase, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In fact, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Roman Roadmap of Salvation, which is taking people through the book of Romans to, to demonstrate from Scripture that they're a sinner, the penalty for sin is, is eternal damnation, that God sent His Son to die for us, to pay that penalty, and that if we trust in Him, we can have eternal life. And it usually ends with Romans 10.13, which as you see, this is the New King James, it's in quotes because Paul is quoting from Joel chapter 2 here, uh, verse 32. And so often people will sort of uh, truncate the gospel message into, well, if you call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. And unfortunately, that is not at all what Joel is talking about in the original context. And whenever you see a New Testament passage quote an Old Testament passage, 
you better go back and look at the Old Testament passage because there's a reason that he's doing that. I mean, Paul especially, he knew the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, he was a, a Pharisee and a Jew among Jews. He was, a, he was a scholar in the Hebrew scriptures. And so he wasn't just arbitrarily coining a phrase. He was quoting Joel. And so let's do that. Let's take a look at the context here from Joel uh, chapter 2. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the passage, you find out, and it's pretty clear throughout, that Joel here is talking about the return of Christ, the Messiah, to establish the long-awaited kingdom for Israel and to rescue Israel, his chosen nation, from all of their oppressors and enemies and usher in the kingdom age, as promised to them, uh, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. So here, for example, in verse 19, we read, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied with them. Notice, I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Now, has that happened yet? Certainly not. Israel is still very much the most hated nation in the world, with the possible exception of America. Uh, but this is Joel speaking prophetically, obviously, of a future uh, time. And, and he concludes this famous passage by talking about a lot of the th things that are going to happen during the tribulation period, the cosmic signs and wonders in Joel 2, 28 uh, and following. And then he gets to verse 32 and he says, And it'll come to pass then that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And remember the word saved, both in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek, has the sense of delivered or rescued. And as with all words, context has to determine the meaning. And here it means not deliverance from the penalty of sin and individual eternal life, you know, the granting of individual eternal life, but it means national salvation, national deliverance into uh, the kingdom. And now what's interesting is if you go back to Romans 10 uh, and instead of you know, we're really looking at two case studies here because people take Joel 2.32 out of context and they take Romans 10.13 out of context. Uh, Paul is speaking about national Israel and he's, he's, he's making the same point that, that Joel does. And, and this passage in Romans 10.13 has nothing to do with individual eternal salvation. It's all about national deliverance into uh, the kingdom. So, We've talked about this before, uh, not in this current series, but in a previous midweek series where we talked about the doctrine of salvation. I think I spent at least a week or two on Romans chapter 9 and 10. But let me just do my best to summarize it here in, in five minutes if I can. So in the book of Romans, when you get to chapter 9, ver chapters 9 through 11 are all about Israel. Paul is answering the question, what about the nation of Israel? Is God through with them? Uh, has he forgotten them? Has he forsaken them? Has he abandoned them? Did he turn his back on them? What is going to happen with Israel? And so Paul explains in chapters 9 through 11 all about that. In fact, in chapter 11, you get to the end and he says, uh, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Uh, and in verse 26, and all Israel will be delivered into the kingdom. Uh, talking about the second coming of Christ. But in chapter 10, Paul is basically saying uh, that before the nation of Israel can be delivered nationally into the kingdom, individual Jews have to believe 
the gospel. Every human being on earth, Jews and Gentiles alike, has to come to God individually the same way, by faith. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, believed God and was declared righteous. So he was justified by faith. Uh, so this is true of all people. Uh, the Jewish nation does not get to receive her kingdom just because they are Jews. They have to, in, like everyone else, be individually saved first by faith alone. And so Paul is making that point here. He says, they have not all believed the gospel. Uh, and he quotes Isaiah 53.1 in verse 16, uh, who has believed our report. He says they must believe the gospel first. And so verse 14 is critical, the very next verse in Romans 10. He says, look, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. And the audience that Paul was writing to would have understood perfectly what he meant. That's a second coming passage. It's citing the prophet Joel of what will life will be like when Israel gets the kingdom someday. But then he says, but how can they, Israel, call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And, and so on and so forth. So uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So what Paul is talking about here is the same thing Joel was, that yes, the nation of Israel is going to cry out and call on the name of the Lord. In fact, Jesus tells us explicitly uh, what they're going to cry out. They're going to cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, psalm 118, a messianic psalm, also talks about in that day, the, the day the Lord has made when we will rejoice, the return of Christ, it's when they will cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, but Jesus uh, reminds us, in fact, uh, in Matthew 23, he, he told the Jewish leaders, look, you unbelieving Jewish leaders, you're not going to see me again until you cry out or call out, we might say, to quote Joel, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, so the bottom line is that the first advent, the nation of Israel, its leaders, cried, crucify him, crucify him. But at the second advent, having believed the gospel, they will then call out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they will receive the king. Now, there was a remnant in the first advent that did cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at the triumphal entry. But the national leaders and the mobs of crowds that followed their leaders blindly, very quickly, those cries turned from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him. So uh, just a case study about how important the context is. We can't just rip this verse, Romans 10, 13, which is itself a quotation of Joel 2, 32, out of context and, and make it individually salvific and say, oh, if you'll just call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. I mean, think about it. Is that all it takes to be saved? Every, every person on earth who's ever cried, oh my God, are they saved? Are they going to heaven when they die because they called on the name of the Lord? Of course not. He's talking about a very specific time of calling on the name of the Lord. And that is the national cry of Israel as they're regathered in the land uh, when they cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they won't be able to do that until they have first believed the gospel. So I don't uh, use Romans 10, 13 as a, a personal salvation passage. That's not what Paul is talking about in the context, and that's not what Joel was talking about in the context. Um, I think uh, it's clear when you take the time to kind of dig a little deeper and look close that that is a plain violation of principle uh, number 13, 
about interpreting a passage in harmony uh, with its context. And it's one of those, uh, I think, m uh, common mistakes about the gospel. You know, uh, in uh, my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I talk about six different prevalent gospel models today that get it wrong. Uh, and I don't care how famous the preacher is that's using it. You got to be able to show from Scripture that that's the way a person gets saved. And, and they don't get saved simply by calling on the name of the Lord. They get saved by believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again uh, for their sins. In fact, 160 times or more in the New Testament alone, the Bible conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. So uh, I think we're going to stop there because that's a good stopping point. And uh, that's about, oh, I don't know, 50 minutes. Uh, we normally go an hour, but we also normally have some Q&A time. And that allowed us to get more, cover more ground this time since we're doing this by live stream. Uh, but we're going to pick up next week with some more grammatical principles. And just to kind of give you a heads up of where we're headed, I'm really looking forward once we get through these basic 24 rules uh, I want to get to figures of speech and uh, genre and kind of talk about the importance of different types of biblical literature. I mean, how do you, you know, are there different things to keep in mind when reading, say, the Psalms versus, say, Romans, right? Uh, and But figures of speech is really a fascinating study, too, because, I mean, it, it impacted me when I studied it many, many years ago, because it's amazing how often when reading the Scripture, the figures of speech jump off the page at you now. And it's important to identify them because if you don't recognize that a figure of speech is being employed, you might end up uh, really get, coming to a terrible error. Uh, for example, uh, when Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If you don't understand that that's a figure of speech called hyperbole, <laughs> then you could actually injure yourself. And indeed, uh, through the centuries, uh, many... Uh, people, many uh, sects of Christianity have mistakenly taken that literally uh, rather than figuratively and, uh, and, and actually, you know, been involved in self-abasement and so forth. So uh, we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come, but we do want to get through these principles of interpretation. And so next week we'll pick up with number 14. Uh, we may go back and talk about number 10 that you see on the screen there a little bit. Uh, in terms of uh, the singularity of meaning. Uh, but uh, anyway, thanks for joining us tonight. Again, apologize for not being able to hold our service in person because of inclement weather, but the roads were uh, very, very uh, dangerous. In fact, I know colleges were shutting down early and schools tomorrow are being delayed. Uh, just one of those uh, combination ice and snowstorms that not safe to be out on the roads. So thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, have a great rest of the night and God bless you all.